This is a 10-minute special edition EM Cases podcast on preparation for an emergency infectious outbreak in your ED. The current outbreak, the novel coronavirus, of course, really is a golden opportunity to remind ourselves of how to properly and adequately prepare for an emergency outbreak in our EDs. Now, the mortality rate in patients with coronavirus in this outbreak is less than 1%, which pales in comparison to Ebola or to SARS. So it's a bit of a different kettle of fish. Nonetheless, historically, these types of outbreaks have been occurring pretty regularly every five or six years. Remember, SARS was in 2003, H1N1 was 2009, Ebola was 2014, and now coronavirus in 2020. So outbreaks are really somewhat predictable, and we really should know how to prepare for them in our ADs. Personally, I've been through four of them in my career, so I've had some practice, but I'm quite sure that many of you probably haven't. So in this special edition EM Cases podcast, Dr. Megan Landis, a global health expert, researcher, and EM educator from the University Health Network in Toronto, is going to run through for us how you can best prepare for an outbreak like the novel coronavirus. But before she does, I just wanted to thank the amazing faculty, volunteers, and participants for their huge efforts in making this year's sold-out EM Cases course probably the best ever. We dug deep in the roundtable discussions on PE with Kirsten DeWitt, we had hands-on practicing of awake intubation with George Kovacs, brilliant teaching of shoulder injuries with Aaron Cial. And actually, the the Shoulder Injuries podcast was just released at the same time as this one. So check that out. We had neonatal resuscitation simulations, crike sims involving dance moves, don't ask. Our first sim war led by Ram Samard. They were all so freaking awesome. And I also wanted to thank SREMI, North York General, and Mount Sinai Hospital for their support to make EM cases and the EM cases course happen. We have a date for next year. It's February 6th and 7th, 2021. So set that date aside. Tickets will go on sale in September and will likely be sold out very quickly. Now on to the great Megan Landis on preparation for emergency infectious outbreaks in your ED. Okay, thanks, Anton, for the invitation to talk today about prepping for an emergency outbreak in your emergency department. So today is February 10th, and there's currently 40,000 patients confirmed with a novel coronavirus, or NCOV. Most of them are in China, but a small percentage are in 28 other countries. As the WHO has declared a public health emergency of international concern, anxiety has bloomed in the general population and among frontline healthcare workers about whether or not this epidemic is a mirror of what we experienced in 2003 with SARS. But before I get into specifics, I think it's really important to remember that this situation is evolving and our understanding of this novel coronavirus, even with the amazing amount of knowledge we already have, is still a moving target. So, is this SARS? Very briefly, no. At this time, it doesn't appear to be acting like SARS. Both viruses are part of the same coronavirus family, which is a family of viruses best known to us as the common cold, But on occasion, they can lead to severe respiratory illness, and particularly in vulnerable patients. What we do know is that the mortality rate of NCOV seems to be much lower than that of SARS, and the level of human-to-human transmission seems to be lower as well. Also, in speaking with colleagues who experienced the SARS outbreak in Canada, we are far better prepared for an emerging novel respiratory pathogen in 2020 than we were in 2003. 
But as a frontline provider, what do we need to think about in the emergency department? Well, we all need to be experts in screening, proper personal protective equipment, or PPE, and performing protected critical care procedures. So first, screening. Procedures need to be both reinforced and constantly reassessed, because right now it is based on both symptoms and epidemiology, and frankly, both may change over time, and so it's important to follow your institution's directives on countries of concern or case definitions. Patients meeting the screening definition at triage should immediately be given a surgical mask and placed in a designated isolation room, ideally with negative pressure. And then the team should take a pause to consider next steps. There's no need to rush into a room of a well patient without proper precautions. You could consider information gathering through a window at this point via a whiteboard or calling the patient's cell phone to collect your triage and registration data. There's an excellent podcast by Dr. Howard Evans outlining departmental screening procedures for a rational approach to Ebola that we can link to for further information. Second, protect yourself and your team with appropriate PPE. While the guidelines for PPE may evolve, currently the recommendations are droplet or contact, with some ERs adding airborne precautions for aerosol-generating procedures. We can post the CDC infographic guidelines for PPE after this podcast, but your PPE should include a gown, gloves, mask, and eye protection, which is not your regular glasses, but instead goggles or a visor. This is the time for you to be an expert on donning and doffing your PPE. Donning should be relatively straightforward, and it's probably a good idea to have instructions posted by the PPE and isolation rooms, but here are a few more tips. If you're using an N95 mask, make sure you are fitted for it. Your face may have changed in the 10 years you've been working in the ED. Get refitted. And figure out what eye protection works for you before you see your first patient. Most will fog somehow, and the last thing you want to have to do is adjust and touch your face. And this probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. Do not touch your face. I challenge you to spend an entire shift not touching your face, and you'll be surprised how often you do it. Make it a conscious practice not to. Next, doffing is extremely important, and this is where you're at most risk of contamination or a PPE breach. Again, follow the steps in the guidelines to the T, but here are a few key tips. First, take a pause. Go slowly and pay attention. Be careful and conscious of how you take everything off. You could consider a buddy, so that's one person you can observe your doffing and help you follow the checklist for safe removal. Some places do it with a full buddy and PPE, but it may be more practical to have someone on shift watching you from the clean area while you doff. This is obviously going to depend on volumes and human resources in your department. Practice taking off your gloves properly, your eye protection properly, and your face mask from behind. Maybe it's overkill, but I close my eyes and my mouth when doing this just to protect my mucous membranes. And what do you do if you've been contaminated? So do not panic and rush. Take a pause, clean or sanitize the affected area, and immediately call IPAC or your infection control professionals. So a big question floating around is, what about PAPRs? or a power air purifying respirator. Pappers are a much more comfortable option over long durations of exposure, like an RN spending a whole shift caring for a patient in the ICU, but you have to be trained on them or you're actually far more likely to contaminate yourself in doffing. Currently in Canada, our needs for PPE for suspected cases is much more episodic and short-term during a shift, so it makes the current recommendations for PPE more appropriate. 
Lastly, I want to touch base on probably all of our greatest concern, the critically ill patient who may need an aerosol-generating procedure or who may require a code blue. It's so important to think through this in advance. There's an excellent podcast episode here on EM Cases with Lori Mazurik on the protected code that we can link to, but I'm going to do a quick review. So first, remember that a critically ill patient may present a couple of challenges. They're likely shedding lots of virus in your ED. They may be hypoxic and combative and increasing the spread of that virus. And many of the tools that we usually use can aerosolize the virus. So in that light, do not use nebulizers, humidified O2 or Optiflow, BiPAP or BVM. You can use nasal prongs, you can crank them high, or face masks, and consider placing a droplet mask on the patient if they can tolerate it. You need to think about taking control of the situation early. This means making the decision to involve ICU early, transferring them to an ICU bed early, or intubating them early in the emergency department. Current recommendations are to consider intubation if the FiO2 reaches 50%, which is earlier than we generally do in the emergency department. So, if you need to intubate, take the time to prep yourself and your team, ensure you have on your PPE, and gather everything you need before you go into the room. So who should go into the room? I think only three people. The most experienced MD for the airway, an RN, and an RT. This is absolutely not the time for learners. They have no place in this situation. Have one RN fully dressed in PPE to assist on the outside or the anteroom, and one RN for charting through the window. You can also consider setting up a whiteboard or a speakerphone in case help is needed. Think about sedating and paralyzing the patient early. This may be a great time to consider delayed sequence intubation to consciously sedate your patient for oxygenation, and then actually paralyzing the patient can take coughing out of the equation. Choose your best and safest intubating technique and have your backup ready. CMAC or video laryngoscopy will give you some distance from the patient's airway, but I would make sure I had a bougie as rescue and I would use it early to limit exposure to the airway. Finally, I would highly encourage everyone to practice this. At our site, we have an amazing group of in-situ simulation leaders who have been running simulated protected codes in our department with not only MDs, but everyone who would be involved. They do it with gold dust that the patient coughs up and black light at the end of the session shows everyone where the contamination actually went. I just did one this morning, and it's a phenomenal way to figure out the unexpected kinks in your system. Like, how do you actually get an x-ray machine into a negative pressure room without breaking precautions? So what's the bottom line? Practicing during evolving outbreak can be a very anxiety-provoking experience, but we can all practice the techniques that we know will protect us and our patients. And honestly, we shouldn't let this crisis go to waste. This is a reminder that new pathogens come along all the time, and we should prepare as best as we can. Couldn't agree more. On another note, I've had a few emails asking how to access a list of the show notes for the main episode podcast, and there's three ways to access the show notes all in one place. First, on the EM Cases website, just click on Written Summaries from the navigation bar, and on that page, you'll have a list of all the episodes with, you just click on those and you can access the PDFs of each of them, or you can click on the Evernote icon, and if you sign up for that, then the show notes will automatically go into your Evernote and same for Dropbox if you prefer that. We also just released ECG Cases number six by Jesse McLaren, which is totally awesome. If you haven't checked it out yet, ECG Cases is the best way to 
hone your ECG interpretation skills. And that about wraps up this special edition of EM Cases. Until next time, take it easy. Thank you.